Well, context changes everything, right? For instance, take this glass of water. Is this glass half full or half empty? (laughs) If you say it's half full, you're called an optimist. If you say it's half empty, you're called a pessimist. Uh, But what if we're all wrong, or at least all potentially wrong? Here's what I mean. If you were having a 4th of July party and your fireworks accidentally started a fire in a nearby field, which happened to us a few years ago, and this glass of water is all you have, is this half full or half empty? Now it's half empty. Because I don't care if you throw this on a fire, it ain't doing nothing, right? Like context changes everything. But, but let's say that you're angry at someone and you want to make a point by throwing water in their face. I'm not suggesting that you should do this. I'm not saying I've ever done this. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying if you wanted to make a point, is this half full or half empty? Now it's half full. Doesn't take much water to make a point when you're throwing it in someone's face. Uh, You you can ask one of my daughters. I won't tell you which one, uh, but her name starts with M and ends with Ariah. But I won't tell you which one. You can ask her what happens when you throw water in your dad's face after repeatedly hearing the consequences of what would happen. It might be the end result of a very angry teenager fully clothed sitting in a cold shower. I'm just saying context changes everything. But let me shift gears for a moment and ask some more serious questions. Uh, Ones that I don't want a response vocally from. I know I often ask for verbal response, but with these questions, please don't say anything out loud. Here they are. Should someone ever get divorced? Is divorce a sin? Can you get remarried after you've been divorced? And didn't Jesus say you can't get divorced? Those are heavy questions, right? I can feel the, the tension shift in the room just by asking those. Those questions affect most of us in the room, either directly or indirectly. Did you know that 90% of Americans get married by the age of 50? 90%, that was surprising to me, that 90% get married. But even though 90% of people get married by the age of 50, just over 50% of all marriages end in divorce. That's just proof to me, by the way, that marriage actually solves nothing. Solves nothing. Like specifically, 41% of all first-time marriages end in divorce. 60% of second marriages end in divorce. And 73% of third marriages end in divorce. That means there's hardly any of us left in the room who don't have first-hand experience in some way with divorce. So those questions are very personal, often very painful, and I believe critically important for us to answer. But to answer those questions correctly, don't you think context matters? In fact, with those questions, I would say context changes everything. Changes everything. So it's those questions about divorce uh, that I want to address today in context. As we continue a sermon series we've been in all about relationships called Hashtag Single, Finding Fulfillment No Matter Your Relationship Status. If you're new here, by the way, uh, my name is Jeff Manis. I am the lead pastor here. And for everyone who is here, including anybody joining us on video somewhere, thank you so much 
uh, just for choosing to be with us today. A couple of things I want to address before we dive in. First of all, next Sunday, November 17th, we're going to be ending this series we've been in by having a live Q&A right here on the platform. So you'll have a way to anonymously ask questions in the service via a website, and then I'll do my best in every service to answer as many of your questions as I can pertaining to relationships and sexuality. That's next Sunday. Second of all, I want to take a moment and address the save the date cards that were on your chairs when you came in. So wherever you put that, would you please grab that right now and then make sure you take it with you as well. Coming up on Sunday, December 8th, we are officially kicking off our year-end I Heart Wyoming offering that we take every year. I Heart Wyoming is an extension of our vision here to guide people to experience life to its fullest, connect into meaningful relationships, and make a lasting impact. And a part of our lasting impact is we partner with other churches all around our state through iHeart Wyoming. In fact, since 2017, we have partnered with 29 unique ch churches in 15 of the 23 counties in our state, giving away to them uh, $215,600 for them to tangibly serve uh, their communities, meeting their needs. One of the churches we've partnered with is Casper Faith Assembly Church up in Casper. And last year, we financially partnered with them to do a food giveaway for Thanksgiving, much like the one we are doing coming up here at Element. They had over 150 volunteers. They served uh, 900 families, and they gave away all the food and fixings you would need for a Thanksgiving feast. All total, they served 900 families and gave away over 20,000 pounds of food to families in need. And listen, we are a part of that by our giving through iHeart Wyoming, which is incredible. And so those are the kinds of things iHeart Wyoming goes to, the offering goes to. And here's what I'm asking of all of us right now. Okay, here's all I'm asking. Pray. Just pray. And here's the prayer. God, what do you want to give through me to iHeart Wyoming? What do you want to give? And then whatever he leads you to give, just be faithful to give it. God will not ask you to give what you cannot give. So just be faithful to give. Not only am I praying for what our family is giving, but I'm also praying for 100% participation from everyone who calls Element Church their home. 100%. All of us involved. And here's why. No one person can give everything, but we can all give something. And if we all give something, we'll end up accomplishing everything. So start praying today towards that day, and then we're going to celebrate in the end whatever God gives through all of us. Now, back to our questions about divorce. Those questions I asked, they are highly debated and hotly contested questions in the church. And the church has not always, not like just Elementary Church, but God's church, we've not done a great job with those questions over the years, especially in relation to how we have treated people who are divorced. In fact, you might be here today and you struggle with God or you struggle with God's church based on how you or someone you love were treated by Christians simply because of, of divorce. And if that's caused you to not believe, I get it. I do. It's painful to be treated as less than for something maybe that was outside of your control. And I can't promise you that you'll never be hurt by anyone in our church. What I can promise you, though, is this. We are going to do our best to love you and lead you like Jesus would, even if you never believe what we do. 
about God, about marriage, or about divorce. And out of all those questions I asked previously, the one I asked, uh, there's only one question I asked about divorce that matters, that matters the most anyway, and it's the opinion that I think we should really pay attention to, and it comes from the last question. Didn't Jesus say you can't get divorced? So that's our big question for today. It's on the screens if you want to write it down. What does Jesus say about divorce and remarriage? What's Jesus say about divorce and remarriage? Main scripture, Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament portion of the Bible. It's written by a man named Matthew. He's one of the 12 uh, disciples of Jesus. So this is an eyewitness account to the life, ministry, and teaching of Jesus. If you need a Bible, please don't leave without one today. We'll give you one for free. Just ask for them out in the lobby. We'll get you a Bible free of charge. Here in Matthew 19, Jesus was asked a question about divorce. However, as we've already established, context changes everything. So I'm gonna add some context as we go here. Matthew 19, one through three says this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, and I underlined that because it's important that the things he just said are the ones recorded in chapter 18. Jesus just got done teaching on the subjects of humility, conflict resolution, forgiving one another, and seeking restoration. Is that not helpful and applicable context when it comes to marriage, divorce, and remarriage, those subjects? So we already see context here. He left Galilee and went down to the region of Judea, east of the Jordan River. Large crowds followed him there, and he, and he healed their sick. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Now, here it is. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? For just any reason. And here's why they asked that question. In first century Israel, where Jesus lived, the majority of Jewish people had grown accustomed to and even began to live by the school of thought led by a teacher named Hillel. And Hillel taught that a man could divorce his wife literally for any reason. It was called any cause divorce. That for any reason he disliked his wife, he could give her a written certificate of of divorce, that if he didn't like her cooking, if he didn't like her breath, if he didn't like the fact that she cheered for the Patriots, whatever it was, somebody said amen, wow, wow. For anything you disliked, you could divorce a woman. But even though most people would have known and even followed that teaching, divorce was common because of that teaching in the days of Jesus, the Pharisees were actually split. They were teachers of religious law. They were split on their opinion uh, between the teaching of Hillel and another teacher named Shammai, who was a rival teacher of Hillel. Shammai taught that a wife could only be divorced for adultery. So outside of, of sexual immorality, the two should remain one in marriage. So with that context in mind, now you know why the Pharisees even asked the question in the first place, and now you know what was behind their question. So now Jesus, understanding the debate between Jewish religious leaders and understanding how common divorce had become in the culture in which he lived, does that not sound familiar? With that context, he answers their question, verse 4. Haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied? They record that from the beginning... 
God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. That's a direct quote from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, which we taught on a few weeks ago. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away, they asked. Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. And with the last word of that verse, we see the first thing Jesus says about divorce. Number one is this, divorce was never God's intention. It was never God's intention. Cutter Calloway, in his book, Breaking the Marriage Idol, which I've referenced in every sermon in the series, he made this statement about what Jesus said. Nowhere in Matthew 19 does Jesus suggest that we were made for marriage or that marriage was made for us. So he's not teaching that we have to get married. Rather, his point is that marriage was not made for divorce, which is true, by the way. But it's deeper than that. It's deeper than just not being made for divorce. Look at what God said in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. God, through the prophet Malachi, says this, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. That's some strong language that I know probably makes some of us feel very uncomfortable in the room. But please notice, God did not say he hates the divorcee. I think that's how the church has kind of got this wrong over the years. We've treated people as if God says, I hate the divorcee. But he doesn't say that. He says, I hate divorce. And why does God hate divorce? Why does he say that? Well, I believe God hates, the, the reason God hates divorce is rooted in the fact that God knows all too well the pain, the damage, the scars, and the residual effects that happen when you separate two people who had become one. He understands that. And not just the pain and damage to them, but to everyone who was associated with them in their life. I'm, I think we'd all agree that no matter how bad a marriage is, divorce is always painful. It's always painful. No matter how much you want to be separated, you're never truly separated from your ex-spouse. You can't be because you were one. You were already one. And when you add kids to the mix, is this not even more true? The memories, the pain, the scars, the damage, like it's, it's, it's already been done. And yes, Praise Jesus. God can and does bring healing and wholeness back into our lives. Thank you, Jesus. But there is a reason why God says, I hate divorce. And there's a reason why Jesus says it was never God's intention. Because divorce will wreak havoc in people's lives that sometimes lasts a lifetime. And many of you know this all too well. You're living it. So what did Jesus say about divorce? He said, it's not what God intended. Then he goes on in verse nine, and it doesn't get any easier, I'm telling you. It says this, and I tell you this, now he's giving them information they didn't even ask for. 
I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. Anyone else want to volunteer to continue preaching my sermon? Because I'm about done. The, the word unfaithful here, by the way, when, it, when this was written, is the Greek word porneia, which means sexual immorality. So outside of sexual immorality, Jesus is saying there's not an allowance for divorce or remarriage. So that's the second thing Jesus says about it. Number two, divorce is only allowed due to immorality. Or maybe to be more true to the text, divorce and remarriage is only allowed due to immorality, sexual immorality. Like Jesus seems to be pretty clear. If one spouse has been sexually unfaithful, then, then there is an allowance for divorce and remarriage. This, by the way, would have flown in the face of the any cause divorce that most people and most Pharisees believed and lived by in that day. I mean, this was Jesus raising the standard, raising the expectation of marriage to a place that no one who heard this was comfortable with. So if you're uncomfortable, welcome to the club. None of them were comfortable either with this. I mean, Jesus was literally saying, this is where your standard is, but this is where I'm taking it. Which, by the way, was the MO of Jesus. He said, you've heard it said this, but I say this. That's what he was doing here with marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Now, as I said last week, please, please, please understand, I am not saying that someone should ever remain in an abusive or harmful or dangerous situation for you or, or your family. And I'm not saying that I'm the final authority on this in no way, no how. I'm just saying, Jesus seems to make it pretty clear. If, and I did some deep background study on this from other theologians and Greek language and all that, he seems to be very clear that his design and his desire for marriage in his kingdom was that outside of sexual immorality, there was not an allowance to break the covenant of marriage. It just wasn't there. I mean, according to Jesus, the only allowance for divorce and remarriage was adultery on behalf of one of the spouses. Now, let me also say this. No matter what allowances there might be for divorce, like whatever the allowance, there is also an opportunity to forgive. We often jump to, well, I have an allowance for divorce. You might have an allowance, but you also have an opportunity to forgive. Again, I am, please hear me, I'm not saying that someone should continue to be cheated on or abused or taken advantage of in a marriage, that's not what I'm saying. But when a spouse has been unfaithful in any way, it's not just an opportunity for divorce, it's also an opportunity for forgiveness. Because I am a firm believer, church, firm believer, and ain't nobody talking me out of it, that there is no marriage that God cannot rebuild, restore, and redeem for his glory. If that's not true, then I'm going to stop preaching. That it requires two people, I understand. But there's nothing God can't overcome. Nothing. Cutter Calloway, again in the Breaking the Marriage Idol book, said this. So from the very start, responding to the call of marriage as a Christian should involve a basic recognition that there are no such things as perfect mates. 
There are only flawed and unfaithful people who are exactly like us, people who need forgiveness for failures that seem impossible to forgive. So divorce and remarriage, Jesus said, is allowed due to immorality, but it's also an opportunity for forgiveness and restoration to potentially take place. But the third thing, it doesn't get any easier. Divorce can actually lead to immorality. Like, trust me, I don't, I don't want to be preaching this sermon right now. But Jesus in verse 9 said, and I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. So literally, divorce and remarriage could cause me to commit adultery. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm running out the back door when this message is done. Now, some of you are thinking the exact same thing the disciples were thinking when they heard this. Are you out of your mind? Like, are, literally, are you insane? Because no one lives like this. No one can abide by this. That's what they said. Look at Matthew 19, 10 through 12. Jesus' disciples then said to him, if this is the case, Jesus, if that is your standard for marriage, it's better not to marry. Jesus said, not everyone can accept this statement. Only those whom what? God helps. Which, by the way, we should, every standard Jesus sets requires the help of God. Jesus sets a standard that we cannot attain without the power of his spirit. So he's, that's every standard, not just marriage standards. So only those whom God helps. And then he goes off, on, I'm, I'm acknowledging up front, it sounds like he's lost his mind because now he says something super, super weird. Like it doesn't even apply. Some are born as eunuchs. Like homies say, what? <laughs> if you don't know, a eunuch is someone who's born without the male physical anatomy, right? And in this culture, if you could not reproduce, you weren't allowed to be married. So eunuchs could not be married. So he said, some are born as eunuchs. Some have been made eunuchs by others, meaning they've had their male anatomy chopped off by wicked people. And some choose not to marry, but the Bible actually softens the language. If you look at the original Greek language, Jesus said, some choose to spiritually castrate themselves. Meaning, they have, given, they have given up marriage for the kingdom of God. They are choosing not to marry. They're spiritually castrating themselves to pursue Jesus. So some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. Like, what? <laughs> Don't let this be lost in all of this. This is powerful. Yes, this might be the clearest teaching Jesus ever gave on marriage and divorce, but also in one fell swoop, in one statement, using the extreme example of eunuchs, Jesus is actually saying, not everyone's called to marriage. 
that some people actually choose not to be married for the kingdom of God. Some people desire marriage, the desire isn't bad, but for whatever reason, they remain single. Either way, in this one statement, Jesus was elevating the status and value of singleness to an equal place of honor as married people in the kingdom of God. And at the same time, he was elevating the standard of marriage that requires the power of the Holy Spirit to actually live out. All in one statement, he was doing that. So what does Jesus say about divorce and remarriage? Well, it's not what God intended. It's only allowed through because of immorality. It can actually lead to immorality. And then the last one we see here after my recent rant based on that, neither marriage nor divorce are inevitable. In the days of Jesus, marriage was expected. Does that not sound familiar? Because what do we say to single people who get into their mid-20s and late-20s and early-30s? Well, when are you getting married? Maybe they're choosing not to for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is saying they have an equal place of value and honor. So what Jesus is saying, you don't have to get married. And he's saying if you're married, you don't have to get divorced. You don't have to. That the only way to live out singleness, the only way to live out marriage, the only way to live out being a divorcee is by the power and help of God. Now, this brings up all sorts of contextual questions, ones that I'm not sure I have answers for. I wish I had super easy answers for you, but I know you're asking these questions. Questions like, what about people who got divorced before they became Christians? Or before they knew the teachings, what about them? Before they knew the teachings of Jesus? That's a great question. Are you ready for a very profound answer? I don't know. I don't know. But I'm willing to wrestle with this with you. Well, somebody might ask, I just got divorced. Do I have to stay single? Let me just say as lovingly, but as strongly as I can as your pastor, if you just got divorced and you're already worried about getting into another relationship or into a marriage, I've got a lot of red flags that go up. A lot of red flags. Like that's the last relationship you should be seeking and the last question you should be asking. That in this new season, you should be running to the arms of your savior, not to a new spouse. It is not the answer you need. I I understand the question, I get the desire. The desire's not bad, okay? That's the last thing you should be worried about right now if you're recently divorced. You need time to heal, lots of time. Well, what what if I didn't want the divorce and my spouse left me? Also a great question that I don't know a clear answer to. Here's some helpful information. 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11 and verse 15, God through the apostle Paul says this, but for those who are married, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. A wife must not leave her husband, but if she does leave him, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him. And the husband must not leave his wife. But if the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the believing husband or wife is no longer bound to the other, for God has called you to live in peace. Do with that what you will. For me personally, 
this is where I am today as your pastor, I don't think I could ever advise someone to get divorced. I just couldn't do it. Based on what I see in scripture, separated, sure, out of the home, yep. I can't advise someone to get divorced. In the same way, I don't think I could ever advise someone to get remarried outside of the allowances that the Lord has given us. I'm not saying you can't do that. I am not speaking against you if you have done that. I have nothing against you. I just can't advise it. Well, then someone might ask, well, I'm already divorced and remarried. What do I do? <laughs> am I committing adultery? That's a great question, by the way. Because what Jesus said is pretty strong. Notice Jesus said that a person who gets divorced and then marries someone else except for immorality, it says they, that they the, commits adultery. So, so I don't believe that if you are divorced and remarried, you are perpetually committing adultery for the rest of your life. Don't believe that. I do believe, though, there are some cases where the act of remarriage could have been an act of adultery that needs forgiven. And just like any other sin, you might need to ask God to forgive you of that act of sin, getting remarried out of a wrongful divorce. The act of divorce can be sin. Can, and notice I'm using can be. It can be sin that you might need to ask God to forgive you of. Definitely does not mean that you should get divorced again. Like divorce from your second marriage to make up for your first divorce is not the solution. We learned that as children, right? Two wrongs don't make a right. Here's probably the most important question people need answered. I'm divorced or I'm divorced and remarried. How does Jesus feel about me? That question, church, I can answer with confidence. In John chapter four, the disciple John records the story of an encounter between Jesus and a Samaritan woman. Samaritans uh, were, were despised by the Jewish people in this day. And to be a Samaritan woman would have put her on the lowest rung of value to all Jewish people. On top of all of that, we see that Jesus knew, because he's sovereign, he's God, he knew that this woman had been married five times and the man she was living with currently was not her husband. So it appears she is a five-time divorcee while now living in sin with her boyfriend. And in spite of all of that, what did Jesus do? He sought her out. He went to her. And he was not affirming what she had done, but he was affirming her as a person that he came to die for. And what's interesting is the journey Jesus was on at the time did not require for him to go through Samaria. He went out of the way to go through Samaria in order to go there, I believe, for her. And I believe he went to Samaria for some of you in this moment. I believe that. So Jesus arrives at a well where you get water. He sat down at the well and guess who shows up? This five-time divorcee living in sin with her boyfriend who is not her husband. And Jesus, as she shows up, he asks her for some water. So can I have some water? 
And that conversation led to Jesus sharing with her the living water that only he could give. And he told her, he said, woman, if you, if you, if you drink from this well, you're going to be thirsty again. But there's a water I can give you. It's living water. The water I give actually wells up within you, a bubbling spring leading to eternal life. And if you drink my water, you'll never be thirsty again. He was telling her, listen, you're not going to find a quench for your thirst in men unless that man is me. So the conversation continues. She said, I want this water. Give me that water so I'll never thirst again. And the conversation goes on. And, and she says somewhat proudly, almost as if she's going to impress Jesus with this statement. She said, someday we know the Messiah will come. And when he comes, he'll reveal everything. Little did she know she was speaking to the Messiah. And what was Jesus' answer when she said, someday the Messiah will come? This is what Jesus said. This is the most beautiful words that Jesus ever said. He said, I am the Messiah. In other words, in other words, he was saying to this five-time divorcee living with her boyfriend in sin, listen, he was saying to her in that moment, I'm with you, I'm for you, and I love you. I love you. And friends, that's what he's saying to you. No matter your relationship status, single, married, divorced, divorced again, remarried, I'm with you, I'm for you, I love you, right where you are. He's saying to you what he said to the woman, you will constantly search to quench your thirst until it's been quenched in me. I am the Messiah you're looking for. So here's what I wanna do. Because of the sensitive nature of this subject, I'm not gonna have anybody raise their hands or stand up. But I do wanna pray for those of you who have been affected in any way by divorce. This is heavy. But I do believe Jesus went to the well, not just for that woman, he went to the well for you. I'm just gonna ask everyone to bow your heads and close your eyes and please respect that in this moment because here's what I'm gonna do next. So bow your heads, close your eyes. And then if you're here and you have been... <clears throat> affected by the ravages of divorce in any way, and you want me to pray for you, I just want you to look up and just look at me. And you stay looking until I'm gonna to try to see everybody I can. I didn't lock eyes with you. Can I just say, keep your heads bowed, your eyes closed. Can I just say this? I think Jesus, Jesus is saying this to someone right now. I see you. 
I see you. Someone here is feeling like they're not even seen. I don't know who it is, but that was for you. Father in heaven, I can feel the pain. And yet you carried that pain to the cross. So Jesus, right now in this moment, I don't even know how to pray. But I pray that these precious souls who lifted their heads would hear you say, I'm with you, I'm for you, and I love you. Lord, may I, may we find our fulfillment in you alone and the living water that you provide. Help us be a church, God, that walks with those who are hurting. Even in times where we may not agree, help us walk with them. Lord, I pray that we'd leave today with our cups full of your presence. We love you, God, and give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.